0: Hey, listeners, after five babies, I've changed a lot of diapers, and I have opinions about them. A lot of people think Pampers Cruisers 360 are best to use when your baby is older. But in my experience, they're the best diapers to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. That's because these diapers don't have ordinary diaper tabs. They have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who just can't stop moving, just slide on to apply, rip the sides to remove, and roll everything up with the disposal tape on the back. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, and just got even better with a new blowout barrier. And since these diapers stretch with your baby, your active baby can move all over the place, getting into everything as usual. Pampers Cruisers 360 are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Yes. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated... We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of 5, an author, journalist, and speaker.
2: And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of 3, a practicing physician, and blogger on the side.
0: We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 244, which is airing in early April of 2022. I will be interviewing Oliver Berkman, who is the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, I know many of our listeners have read it and probably many more should read it because it's a great book where he talks about uh, the philosophy of how it changes how you live when you truly recognize that you aren't going to live that long uh, in the grand scheme of things when it comes to the universe, you know? So 4,000 weeks, for those who are wondering, is roughly a human lifespan. In one of my books a great many years ago, I ran a number as like 800,000 years. I think I was being a little bit more generous but uh, Oliver said he wanted to choose a, a round number, two. But yeah, so Sarah, we have spent many of those 4,000 weeks. Well, we've only had about 2,000 of them now at this point, I guess, <laughs> with children. So you guys, your family is celebrating something special today. Yes,
2: I guess we're almost at 520 weeks, 52 <laughs> times 10, to put it mildly. Yes, this episode actually airs on Annabelle's 10th birthday, which is kind of a milestone, maybe just as much for me as it is for, well, okay, for both of us. Certainly a very large milestone to turn double digits after you've been a little kid for so many years. But since she is my first child, it is also my 10th anniversary of being a parent and a mother. And so that is like really interesting to think about in terms of, you know, what fraction of my life that is and how much time. I have left with her likely in our home. I mean, anything could happen, but if she follows the traditional timeline of 18 years or so at home, then we are well more than halfway
0: through, which is kind of scary. Well, you know, time does pass. It just keeps passing. It's true. Yeah, no, I think of that too, that the your oldest child's birthday is your anniversary of parenthood as well. I mean, even obviously though, you probably- felt that way coming into it nine months before, but uh, it, it is definitely a different thing once you actually have the kid there. And it is hard to sort of think about life before that. I mean, I have a great many memories of more than about 15 years ago, but it does wind up being a very dominant thing in your life then after it becomes, becomes the case.
2: Speaking of time and our perception of time, which I guess you think about a lot, but you know, like that very common trope where parents will be like, oh, they're so cute. I just want to freeze time. Like, don't you hear that a lot? I feel like I hear that a lot. You're looking at me like, no, but I feel like I have a lot of friends who are just like, no, oh. just that I disagree <laughs> that we need to freeze time. When the- <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, gotta- that was the reason for the look. That makes more sense. Yes. No, me too. I've always been like slightly envious of people who say that, but also dubious at the same time. Like, really? You want to freeze time when you still have to change diapers and like your kid can't talk to you yet and like, I don't know. I mean, listen, those baby years are very, very sweet and they're very, very sweet in the memory. But if I was going to freeze a time, it would be more like now or maybe like, yeah, now would be good. Because now's a
0: good time. I mean, you've got, you know, three school aged roughly children. I mean, Genevieve's in school most of the, you know, more or less now too. And um, everyone's out of diapers. Everyone's talking to you is uh, reasonably rational, but is not necessarily at the you know crashing the car into the neighbor's garage stage yet either so it's uh it's it's pretty much a sweet spot it is a sweet spot
2: but unfortunately there is no freeze button or fast forward button for that matter
0: whether you're happy with your stage or you're not no rewind button yes <laughs> there, there is nothing on this DVR player of life yeah i mean i've been as of this april i have been tracking time for 7 years consecutively, you know, continuously, which is approximately, I said it was 364 weeks. And then I realized it's actually more like 365 weeks because a year has a little bit over, there's like a little hangover on on, uh, the 365 and the number of weeks that says like 52.29 weeks in a year. Anyway, so it's somewhere between 365 and 366 weeks, but it is a reasonable chunk of of 4,000 or maybe. 4,500. If you know, we like to have slightly longer (laughs) lifespans anticipated, but uh, it's funny to think that I know where all that time went. I like the
2: optimism, and yes, that is funny to know that. Yeah,
0: well, Oliver wrote 4,000 Weeks. I mean, just to talk about the philosophy of how we spend our time, how acknowledging our finitude can change things. I love that word, the finitude. (laughs) And the universe is around for billions of years, we get 4,000 weeks. humanity, indeed, is not actually going to be that long, which is sort of funny when people talk about, you know, one of the things he talks about in his book is all these sort of Silicon Valley tech bros talking about how they're going to make a dent in the universe. It's like, you are not making a dent in the universe, no matter what you do. Like, I mean, you know, the most important person on the planet isn't probably making a dent in the universe as it goes. But, you know, on some level, that's kind of liberating, because if you realize you aren't making a dent in the universe. Maybe you can be more cheerful about your own experience of time, making a dent in your own satisfaction, uh, making a dent in your own um, ability to make life more comfortable or cheerful for someone else. And that that certainly counts too, a different sort of dent in the universe, but probably a good one all the less. Uh, So anyway, lots of food for thought. We encourage you to check out his book and I will go right into the interview section with Oliver. Well, Sarah and I are delighted to welcome Oliver Berkman to the program. Oliver, can you introduce yourself to our listeners?
3: Sure. I'm an author and a journalist. I most recently wrote a book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Before that, a book called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. I've sort of written in a journalistic context for many years now on, I guess, self-help, productivity, time management, the science of happiness, all that stuff lived in New York for many years, but uh, now speaking to you from uh, Northern England.
0: Excellent. And as part of, you know, writing these books on productivity, uh, you, you tested out a great many productivity books over over the years. Um, indeed, you described yourself as something of a recovering productivity geek. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Sure. Yes. I mean, Right. I mean, one of the things I did was to write this weekly column for The Guardian and it was a great opportunity. I'm incredibly glad that I got to do it. But it was also slightly enabling of a of, of a sort of troublesome tendency in me. I'll be interested to know if you feel like you ever had a similar tendency, which is a sort of great interest in trying to find the perfect way to organize my time and to sort of cram the most in or at least never have to disappoint anybody or drop any balls or anything like that, that I sort of came to feel in the end was, I don't know, not entirely healthy, motivated by a desire to avoid certain truths about life and about maybe my life in, in my particular case. So, yeah, one of the things I have done is is try out many, many, many different techniques with this uh, this hope that, one of them or one combination of them is going to, I don't know, be my existential salvation or something and make and make everything all right.
0: <laughs> and yet it became clear to you that you still had only 4,000 weeks to live. That is uh, where we get to the, the title of that. It's funny because I actually did the math in hours. <laughs> oh, for one of one of my books, uh, several years ago, and I, I think I gave myself a wee bit more generous. Uh, it was more like eight hundred thousand hours. I guess I was planning to live to ninety.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, I am, I am. I totally plead guilty to choosing an age that turns into a round number. <laughs>
1: exactly. So,
3: and as I make clear in the book, obviously, with a, with with luck, uh, m- many most people reading it will get it. Will get a few more than that. But uh, yeah, it's all shockingly finite.
0: It is. It is very finite. And you wrote in your book that it grew painfully clear that the things I got done most diligently were the unimportant ones while the important ones got postponed. I mean, why is that when, when one is trying to organize life and time that that seems to happen?
3: Well, I I mean, in my experience, I think the, the, down-at-the-ground-level answer is is simply that, um, you know, you tell yourself that you need real time and focus in order to turn to the things that really matter. You know, commun- I give the example in the book of, like, doing research for an article when I worked as a journalist. There's the sort of quick stuff you do, and then there's the The slow burn things you're sort of doing off your own initiative that might make a difference to your career in a significant way. And it's that latter that you tell yourself you really need time and attention. You need to have all this other stuff off your plate. You need the decks to be clear. And of course, the decks are never clear. And in fact, the effort to try to clear them often makes them fill up again faster. And so you systematically don't get around to the things that you tell yourself you really need. The time for because you have set this this standard of um, of needing to get everything out of the way. At a, I guess at a deeper level, because I do try to sort of tie all this in all through the book to the the philosophical level. I think that you know w- we mainly exist in this situation of deep denial about what it is to be a finite human being with limited time, limited control, and so there's something very comforting about putting off to later. The things that really matter, the the feeling that like real life is going to be in a few months' time when I've got all this stuff dealt with, because you know it has this quality of timelessness to it. It's this idea that there's always going to be more time, and that uh, at some point in the future you'll get your life in in working order and you'll you'll do it right. And it's only a provisional state now that you've got to be you know managing all this chaos and these obligations (laughs) that you didn't choose. It's very it's very alluring to want to sort of. Hold on to that that vision that it's yeah. not going to be like that one well, day, uh,
0: and then eventually the future keeps coming and uh, we run out of time. So you talk about the art of creative neglect. That one way you learned to deal with this, or in the process of learning. I guess we're always a work in process, but that there are certain things you just decide not to do or to limit how many works you have in progress at any given time. How, how does this sort of change your mindset as you go about your work?
3: I mean, I have, to the extent that I've managed to put this into practice, I've found it extraordinary. It isn't, it, there's an interesting distinction here, I think. It isn't about deciding to neglect a whole lot of tasks in order to focus on a few. It's about recognizing the truth that you always are doing this anyway, and deciding to do it more consciously, I think that one of the things we don't like to admit about being limited humans is that we are always neglecting a thousand things in order to focus on any on any one thing and if you do that unconsciously, what tends to happen is you get your attention gets dissipated between them all you're trying to sort of you 're spreading yourself too thin. You don't actually make progress on any one thing because whenever one thing gets difficult, you just bounce off to the next. And I have really benefited from a sort of conscious approach that says, okay, and this can happen at different levels, whether you're talking about the number of things you'll do in a day or the number of major projects you're going to have on the go at a given time, but but just saying, okay, I'm going to focus on these three things for now, and I'm going to make all the other ones wait outside the door until I've done these things and that triggers real anxiety because that's the anxiety of you know of confronting your limited power to do things it's saying look you know it would be great to really get a move on with this or that project at work or at home i'm going to still all the same not do that for now because i know that that's what i need to do in order to take this one on and to complete this one first so you know there are many many different ways of of implementing this in practice, but what I've found is that it, I mean, apart from anything else, it just you just actually get more of the important things done at a faster tempo. The reward for being willing to tolerate this anxiety of leaving things undone is that um, is that you you do make much swifter progress on the things you focus on, and then gradually over the long term, you begin to see that you've you've accomplished significantly more than uh, than You would have done, had you tried to sort of do all those things at once. In some ways, this is just the time-honored wisdom that you know most approaches to multitasking don't work. But I think it's interesting to see why, which is this idea that actually keeping a hand in twenty-five projects at once, what that's doing is, I think, I argue, is serving an emotional purpose of making you Mm -hmm. feel in control, rather than serving the purpose of actually giving time and attention to the things that you want to accomplish. Yeah, we just
0: need to make mindful choices. Uh, My my catchphrase is always that uh, expectations are infinite, time is finite. We are always choosing, so choose well, right? Right, (laughs)
3: right. And There's something, I mean, I think it was probably an offhand remark in one of your books, and I don't remember where it was, but you you, uh, might not have even been in one of your books. But uh, something that I recall you saying about People telling your mothers, telling you, I guess specifically that they that they can't relax until all the toys are tidied uh, away. Yes, <laughs> and a little bit of tough love from you, as I recall, saying, "Well, no, actually, you can." And I think that this speaks to the same idea, right? Maybe, maybe it is possible every single day to tidy up all the toys and get them back to a state of perfect tidiness. But as soon as you expand that beyond the one issue of toys to a whole life. All the things you're doing every day, like if you postpone the part where you relax uh, to the point to the place where everything is is squared away and everything is cleaned up and all the loose ends are tied up, then you'll be postponing it forever because it is in the nature of our lives, especially today, that that supply of open loops to close or things on the deck to clear away, whatever, choose your metaphor. It's in the nature of our lives that those things are effectively infinite. So if you put off the real stuff until that's done, you'll never get to it.
0: Yep. And the toys will just come out again the next morning. Uh, So (laughs) you'll never get that hour back. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to take a quick ad break and I'll be right back with Oliver Bergman. Well, I am here with Oliver Berkman talking about his book 4,000 Weeks, which is time management for mortals. It turns out that all of us are mortal, much as we try to deny it. Um, Although one thing that can bring that into sharper focus is, of course, having children. I'm curious, Oliver, your child is relatively young, right?
3: Yeah, he's five now. He was born uh, after I um, initially sold the proposal for this book, which tells you how long it took me to write the book uh, i have to say becoming a <laughs> that, father that did happens. slightly slightly get in the way of the of the book uh, deadlines yeah
0: yes children children will do that on occasion <laughs> so oliver one thing that can change uh, how we think about our mortality and time and all that is becoming a parent and so your child i think is is relatively young so i, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how being a parent has changed how you think about time. I know it certainly changed how I spend my time, <laughs> um, but I'm curious uh, how it has changed how you think about your time.
3: Yeah, he's five now. He he was not born when I first submitted the proposal for this, this book, which tells you something about how long it took me to write, uh, and uh, parenting will, will have that effect on book deadlines. But I think that um, what it really, the real sort of change for me was in the unignorability of one's both the, the one's limited time how little time there is and also making it unignorable that the value and the meaning of life has to at some point be found in present moments if it's to be found at all so you know i think this is all true for people who are not parents or who no longer are the parents of small children but i just think it's really Easy to see when you're the parent of a small child. Firstly, that you're going to have to make decisions every day about what matters enough to spend time on because there are not going to be the extra pockets of time to sort of work on some nice to have work project that isn't that important, but kind of you're going to do it anyway. And then, secondly, because small children change so incredibly fast that if you're going to be present for that childhood, you are going to have to come out of that mindset that is always deferring value to the future which is especially hard in the se- in the for the reason that you know naturally and especially under the influence of lots of parenting advice and parenting books and stuff we're naturally led to focus on the future and to see parenting as the task of trying to create successful adults in the future and you know there's a role for that but i think you really it, it really makes it clear how absurd it is to get into a mindset where that is all you are doing because you just wish your actual life and your actual relationship with an actual child away if you get too deeply entrenched in that mindset.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I think probably there is sometimes a future focus is that especially many of the moments with small kids can be a wee bit tedious, sometimes unpleasant and boring. Um, Mm. There's certainly many wonderful ones and they can come interspersed with the the horrendous ones, um, such as you get a big, you know, hug and kiss, and then the child is biting you like two (laughs) seconds later. Or we just we just live through uh, the stomach bug hitting the household with five children. Um, That is uh, quite something to watch it work its way through uh, five children's (laughs) systems. Um, So I'm curious how we should think about these moments. I mean, when we know that our time is so limited, you know, we have 4,000 weeks. And and here we are spending these long hours doing laundry and getting bitten by toddlers. I mean, it seems like that could almost be depressing. Uh, So I wonder wonder how we should choose to think about that.
3: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think there's a point I want to make, which is sort of about the ideal to aspire to. And then I want to very hastily qualify and say (laughs) that uh, I don't think I come anywhere near to that ideal. And I also do think, despite the marvelously egalitarian household that I am a part of, I'm sure it does ultimately still always fall, or largely often fall, harder on on mothers than fathers. But with those caveats in mind, I do think that a big part of what makes an experience boring or tedious is this way that we bring to it certain kinds of demands that Make it boring when it didn't need to be right there's a there's a sense in which if the more that you need your experience to go a certain way, the more that you need to feel like you're controlling your time, and that is a big theme underlying my book. I accept that it may partly be me talking about my own <laughs> neurotic needs, but I think it's pretty widespread. The more that you think you need to control your time, the harder it is to be in that situation of you know well, this just needs to be done right now, and this these are just the demands that are. Absolutely obligatory. There's no room for manoeuvre. There's no room for sort of um, creativity, in a sense, because it's just it's just what needs to be done. But I do think that the more that um, that we sort of see the truth about the finite nature of our lives and our relationships with our children at any given age, they're not going to be that age for for long. Firstly, it's possible to find more value. In those moments. But secondly, I'm not actually saying I think everyone should manage to find sort of zen-like transcendence in changing diapers or something. I just think that there is a kind of a peace that you can come to with it. It's not about necessarily not finding it boring, but I've thought of it as the sense that like you're in the right place. You know what I mean? There's kind of a, there's a sense that, that when you have these, when you're clear about how being finite as a human works, and the way that these moments don't last, there is a sense in which you can, even if you're not enjoying the chore that you have to do at that moment, there's a sense in which you can find it meaningful because it is the right thing for you to be doing right now at that moment. I don't know if that speaks to yeah. your question, but those are my, yeah, those so, are my thoughts.
0: Uh, always good to to say, well, this is where I am, this is where I am, and this is where I should be. um That that can help with things, uh, even if where you are is a. Changing sheets again. Right. Um, so uh, we um, let's talk about where we should be right now, in, in sort of a more literal sense, because um, we want to talk about planning. So, so two aspects of this, because you have a whole chapter on on I wouldn't say the futility of planning, but the the caveats involved in in planning. Yeah. So first, I'd, I'd love for you to talk about what your planning process looks like now in terms of making sure you are devoting time to the things that you wish to be devoting time to. And then, you know, how we can find sort of the, the happy medium between knowing that on some level life is unpredictable, unknowable, the future and all that. But on the other hand, you know, you might have a book deadline in a year and have right. to get, <laughs> get to that. And, you know, if you have kids who need to be picked up at certain places at certain times, you'd like to have somebody there to have that happen. So, so how we find the happy medium um, in, in making planning work with
3: that yeah absolutely I love this topic I mean partly because I have spent a long time trying to sort of exert total control over my day and then finding every single day that that is thwarted by reality and somehow not learning for a very long time that this was not going to son- suddenly magically start working I think you know it's possible to see this as a as a compromise position this idea that we need to sort of plan, but hold our plans loosely. I think it's a bit deeper, maybe, though, than just a compromise. It's something like seeing what a plan really is. I quote in the book, the uh, meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who says, we forget that a plan is just a thought, right? That, that we forget the present moment nature of a plan. If you if you sit down with your notebook planner at, uh, I don't know, seven, eight o'clock in the morning and try to plan the day, Whether you do it in a very detailed way or a very loose way, and the same would apply to monthly, quarterly planning, you're not actually exerting some kind of control over the future in some strange, magical fashion. You're coming up with a statement of your present moment intent that can serve as a really useful navigational tool for some future present moments you know later in the day when it's a question of trying to uh, decide what to do or figure out what to do next so i think that's the really important point because once you once you see that you can't use a plan to control the future you can use it only to sort of set an intention and then in each moment do what you can to realize that intention it means that you're not sort of living with that Anxiety of waiting to see if reality is going to line up to your plan. It means that you're not, you don't consider it automatically a failure if the day goes in a radically different way. And one of the things, working from home now, one of the things I've had to come to grips with is the fact that I did have approaches to planning whereby if it wasn't my turn to be hanging out after school with our son and he burst into the room and wanted to excitedly tell me for, 15 minutes, the plot of a book he'd been reading at school or something like that. I I had come up with a planning system that defined that as something going wrong with the day, which is, that's bad. Like, you know, there are contexts where it might be something going wrong. If I'm on an urgent deadline that really, really matters, sure. But you don't want to have such rigidity. It's definitely something that I have historically been prone to. You don't want to have so much rigidity in your planning that it automatically causes Such a wonderful positive development to in your day to be seen as a negative one. I'm very conscious talking to a parent of five children that this may be radically, this may get exponentially more complicated. And we've only got one child. But um, so anyway, the way I try to sort of live by this approach now is I wrote about this recently in my email newsletter, actually, an approach that I because every everything's got to have a, a, a name. I I call to myself anyway the three 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 method, where I try to um, do in the course of a day, you know, about three hours on my most important current project, three other shorter tasks, perhaps ones that I've been avoiding or that that are urgent, and then three kind of maintenance activities, which could be anything from kind of healthy habits like. Writing morning pages or walking, as I do, try to do for an hour out here in the country, or things just like processing my inbox. And so I don't think the details of this particularly matter, and I don't think the threes necessarily matter either. The, the point that I'm trying to get at with this is that it's, it's a very low set of goals relative to the discretionary time I have. On a good day, this might take four and a half or five hours and on a good day i might have seven or eight hours to be playing with when it comes to um so there's that relationship is important to me to have that to have it be a a smaller plan than the day allows and then you know when i only have three or four hours i'm making it an appropriately even smaller plan and also that it does not make any attempt to be comprehensive, to try to get to all the things that I think need doing. Because when I ask myself that question, that's a list of 70 things every day. that, that I
0: get believe things. need
3: doing and it's not going to happen. Yeah. And I have learned through hard experience that like doing four things today that really did need doing and doing the same again tomorrow and the same again tomorrow, the day after that, very swiftly ends up leaving things better off. Than if I had, you know, kept on aiming to do seventy because something about the t- those days you aim to do seventy things is you you seem to end up doing even fewer than if you just picked. Up. And
0: probably not yeah. the right ones because right. you haven't thought it through. Absolutely, now. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Leaving leaving open space is, is always wise. <laughs> I mean,
3: and the other thing that I've struggled with mightily is whether to is is time boxing and you know the attempt to sort of the attempt to fit tasks to specific times of day. And I have at this point almost entirely moved away from it. You know, I know I need to do things like the important work has to be done at the beginning of my available work time, because that's how my energy levels work and things like that. But I have always found it ultimately too oppressive and too brittle as a system to say, I'm going to be doing this between 10 and 11:15 or something, because it exacerbates all the worst parts of my personality, but want to try to exert a kind of rigid control over the day and over life. I don't know. Is that heresy in your book?
0: Uh, No, no. I mean, it's fine. I I schedule fairly loosely too, but that's something I can do with, you know, a writer and podcaster's schedule. Mm -hmm. I know people like my co-host, if she's seeing patients from, you know, noon to three. She's going to work around that in terms of when she needs to do her other things. So um, it just sort of depends right. on the, the kind of work you do. But totally. one thing I did want to ask you about, because this is something I think we, we, we both encourage people to do a lot. I mean, you talk about spending some of those 4,000 weeks on hobbies and in particular things that you know, you're know you not trying to do professionally. That you talk about, you know, Rod, was it Rod Stewart building uh, trains, like yeah. toy trains, um, and <laughs> wherever he's going, or people could like build a ship in a bottle or whatever else it is they want to do? But why should we make space for those things in in our four thousand weeks?
3: I think the main reason is that they have this quality of being more obviously just for themselves. The philosopher Kieran Satya uses the word atelic here. Uh, he calls them atelic activities. In other words, they, they're they not defined by their telos or end point. They're not trying to get to a point with them. you are not trying to get somewhere. Their value is in doing them themselves. So one of the examples I talk about in the book, because it's very close to my heart, is hiking. And I'm now really lucky to live somewhere where, you know, you can do such thing as a 40-minute hike, if that's all you have uh, the space for in the course of a day, there's not going to come a point where I sort of declare that I've done all the hiking I planned to do in my life or I've completed all the hiking. I will stop at some point, but only because I have to or want to, not because a destination has been reached. It's not something really that you do to get better at it. It's just walking, and I, I've been pretty good at just walking since I was about you know four. And there are certainly ways now that you can sort of focus on posting your roots and your and your photographs of great thing great views you're seeing to social media and to various apps. So, you know, it can get co-opted into that whole idea of doing it for something else or for some other reason. But it's but it's just, you know, whatever the hobby you would do if you were drawn to if you whatever you're drawn to if if you did make time for a hobby, it's likely to be something that you find pleasure in the doing of for itself. And I even make the argument in the book, it might be quite good to have something in your life that you're sort of actually quite bad at and still enjoy, which for me is playing the piano, specifically kind of bad piano rock, usually with headphones on to spare other people. Because there's no pressure. There's no part of me that is thinking, oh, maybe I can get really good at this and then get paid for it or get critical acclaim. Like that is all these things that I do think about with my writing, you know, I would quite like to be celebrated for my writing and that creates a pressure. There's none of that in playing a piano because it is never going to happen. And as a result, it's actually a special kind of enjoyment and pleasure and relaxation. Yeah.
0: I'm curious if you have anything that is sort of a because one of the things you getting at this kind of weird here, but one of the things you talk about in, in four thousand weeks is aligning your time with other people, and it seems like if you're getting at that, maybe you should even be playing bad rock music with a <laughs> band that like meets at a certain time that you all practice together. So I'm I'm very curious uh, if if you you know have thought about doing something like that.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, until we left Brooklyn for well, actually, until COVID. I was sang every week in, a, in an amateur choir, and I don't want to suggest that, that the end result of that, I don't want to insult the other members of that by suggesting that it was, a, it was a bad choir. It was a very good choir, but one of the wonderful things about choral singing is precisely that you can be not very good at it like me, and the whole is much greater than the sum of its parts. It feels like some kind of, uh, that there must be some sort of mystical explanation for this, but I think it's just basically that people's sharps and flats. Cancel each other out, and the end result sounds a lot more beautiful. Not
0: infinitely, Oliver.
3: <laughs> well, <laughs> I sing,
0: sing in a choir too, and uh, <laughs> we,
3: okay. Well, that's we, we
0: we we get told if we are uh, going flat around the other people.
3: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say we were never we were never kept on our toes, but but anyway, the result is like you do feel transported because you're part of something, and it's something that seems to be better than you know almost any of the members could individually have created themselves you know now i find i don't right now have anything like playing in a band with other people but i totally yes i mean i make the argument in the book that a lot of the value of our time is time coordinated with other people and that means surrendering some of the autonomy over when things happen now i find you know it's very often things involving playdates for the kid, right, or activities and things like this. I know some of these are the the bane of some parents' lives, and again, maybe it's a sort of a luxury of of only having one child. But I find that the rhythms of the week that are imposed by things like swimming lessons and play dates and regular meetups in cafes and things like that are actually like I may sometimes resent them because I had a plan and now I can't put that plan into practice. But more often than not, I end up concluding that on some level. That, well, firstly, that they're enjoyable in practice. And then secondly, that it's kind of good for me on some level to be existing in this kind of web of community. And the only way you can exist in a web of community is if you don't lay down the law all the time about when things happen.
0: Yes. Well, certainly being in any sort of community will do that. And as you know, being a parent will do that as well. And but yeah. all all worth it for that. So we always end with a love of the week. Um so this is just Something that we are enjoying that is good for, you know, our lives at the moment, I can go first so you can think about it. Okay. But as we've been talking, I I love, you know, singing and playing the piano. And sometimes it's fun to just try to play hymns and sing along with those. So I have a piano at my house that I will, you know, play whatever hymns we sang in church uh, and try and go through them and learn the piano. And I am, I am not that great at sight reading. So that could be something that I'm not going to be paid to be doing to be uh, accompanying hymns anytime soon. And I'm having to stop in the middle, but I really enjoy doing it and trying to figure it out. So how about you? What's your, what's your love of the week?
3: I have really enjoyed collecting uh, with my son, collecting uh, frog spawn from some of the ponds on the high moor tops here and bringing a little bit of it back home to a, fish tank and getting those um, pre-tadpoles ready to uh, become tadpoles. Such an incredibly simple uh, thing that sort of reminds me of my own childhood, I suppose, and feels like kids have been doing it since time immemorial. But there's something about tending for little bits of the natural world in some way or another. I guess it's the appeal of gardening as well that uh, I'm really enjoying.
0: That's great, yeah. Uh, hopefully the frogs aren't too loud. <laughs> so,
3: well, they yeah. nowhere near being frogs yet, and they're going. Back. Oh, that's true. Okay, well, they're, well, they're going back. They to... they're, they're going back into the. Uh, they're going back into the ponds they came from, uh, as and when there are any <laughs> well, frogs. Well, I mean, sort of the
0: ponds, <laughs> the frogs on the pond. We um we had some in our backyard in my, my oh, old right. house, and uh, come spring, uh, the the evenings were were filled with a lot of riotous frog activity to create those tadpoles these ponds are a bit further
3: away (laughs) these ponds are a bit further away but as you might have been able to detect so we do have neighbors with very loud chickens so that's my (laughs) that's that's my day-to-day here is uh, roosters crowing.
0: yeah that's well it's uh good to be part of the natural world well (laughs) oliver if you could tell our listeners where they can find you that would be great
3: sure yeah book is available everywhere you might expect. And my website is oliverberkman.com where you can also sign up for my newsletter.
0: Well, thank you for joining us.
3: My pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me.
0: Well, that was great. It is always fun to chat with Oliver. We're so glad he was willing to come on. So this question comes from a listener who says she has been a loyal listener for many years and encourages our words about pursuing both professional success and motherhood. So she has been spinning her head about a dilemma and wanted our counsel. For the past several years, she has been pursuing a career as an independent consultant. She works entirely with nonprofit organizations. As one might imagine, for years she was underpaid, um, especially compared with some male counterparts. But she is finally earning good money. Her business brings in almost uh, $200,000 annually, so great for her. The problem, I can't seem to shake the guilt of earning what I currently make. I know many people who consult make more than I do. And when I think about a man in my situation, I doubt that fear would cross his mind. But I know that many of the people I work with, for instance, full-time employees at schools, often make significantly less than I do, and they also work very, very hard. So it feels a little bit crazy to be earning more than my colleagues. She's feeling guilty about that. Any thoughts or words of wisdom we have for her? So, Sarah, what would you say? I
2: just instinctively was sad that she felt guilty, and so I communicated that to her. I said, personally, I do not think you should feel guilty. This is just your reward for what you have built, which clearly is valuable to other people or else they wouldn't be paying you for those services and therefore you're reaping some rewards. And if you really are guilty and want to alleviate those feelings other than just working on that thought process and thinking about what Laura is going to say after you could think of you know, maybe small ways you might want to be able to give back. And you mentioned like women of color not getting paid fairly. So maybe something along those interests would be purposefully trying to mentor someone who's interested in a similar path who may not have so many opportunities or figure out some other volunteerism to take part in that addresses some of those concerns or even donate some money to maybe a scholarship fund so that someone who you know wants to get education to have a better job Could have those opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. But other than maybe doing some good things to make yourself feel better, I think you should enjoy that you have created something this valuable and be proud of it.
0: Yeah. I would say I would file this under the um, category of questions no man would ever ask us. Two things. One is that consulting is pretty much a free market, like no one ever has to hire a consultant. So if you are bringing in what you feel is you know, really good money, it's because the organizations that hire you are feeling like you add even more value than what they are paying. So when we're talking about nonprofits that are serving the greater good, adding value means you're helping more people. Like you're helping them expand their scope. You're helping them have their finances more under control so they're more sustainable. Those are all great things. Like, yay, okay? Okay. The second part I would say is that people value different things. I mean, I hate to be the one bringing this up, but when you run a business, your business could crash overnight, right? Like in certain circumstances, because no one needs to hire a consultant, if things go south in the funding sources for your um, clients, your business is going to be the first thing on the chopping block, okay? I mean, that's just the, the truth about that sort of thing. Whereas one of the upsides of being perhaps somebody in a unionized position in a public school is that there is a fair amount of stability, right? And so some people value that stability quite a bit. And there's a trade-off there in terms of, you know, maybe not as high a salary as you could have in other circumstances, but there's good, you know, benefits and stability coming with that. So, you know, looking at the whole package. And, And, you know, maybe some people in larger nonprofits that you are serving don't have the unionized aspect or the same benefit packages that that might be involved with that but again they may have more stability too like you know that most people don't want to just cut their employees willy-nilly here and there like it's very hard to run a business if you are doing that running an organization so there's some stability where they are going to most likely get a paycheck every two weeks whereas you have to hustle to bring in what you are earning and so some people value stability more and are willing to accept, you know, in the grand market of labor, lower compensation in order to get that. So that's just something you can tell yourself. I'm not saying that there aren't many people who are underpaid and should be paid more, but you are also getting a risk reward premium. And it's important to recognize that as well. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. I have been interviewing Oliver Berkman, who is the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. We will be back next week with more on making work and life fit together.
2: Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on
0: Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the best of both worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together.